Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In today's episode, we're speaking with Gerald Leonard. Gerald is the CEO of Principles of Execution and a conservatory-trained professional bassist and jazz musician, and also the author of Culture is the Bass and Workplace Jazz. Do you remember times when you were part of or led teams that just worked? There was a positive synergy, a tempo, something that just everyone contributed to? Or times when there was just no jam? The timing was off, everything felt harder than it should have been? I think we've all been in experiences on both sides. So when Gerald reached out to do an interview with us, it struck me that there's an interesting connection between business teams and musical teams. Gerald and his company now serve federal and state governments and multinational corporations like Verizon, Freddie Mac, Hewlett-Packard, Geico, and many more. There's a lot to learn in this interview, and it's a very interesting take. So enjoy this episode. Gerald, welcome to the show. Hey, Corey, thank you so much for having me, man. I'm glad to be here. I'm looking forward to our discussion and you know, as I was just saying in our pre-call, that this is a breakaway from the kind of conversations that I usually have. We usually focus on finance, investor relations, and so on. But there's something really interesting, I think, about the approach you've taken. And you also struck chords, excuse the pun, with your background in jazz. And so I wanted to, I was like, let's have this conversation. But the best way to start is can you give us a background on yourself and then we'll work that into our further conversation? Sure. So the way I got into bringing all this together is that I started out obviously playing music at a very young age. And actually I started stealing my, my sister's guitar. That's how it started. <laughs> and it's the little red guitar behind me there that's on the wall. It doesn't have any strings on it. And, you know, I really fell in love with playing it. And I joined a band with some friends and one of them was an amazing guitar player. So I realized I wasn't going to be the guitar player. So I, I switched to bass. And, you know, with playing bass, you have to really, you're holding down the band. You're kind of like the guy in the background, but you're pulling everything together. And it was also at a time where I grew up in central Florida, in Lakeland, where they had created the Lakeland Civic Center. And before then, as a kid, you know, if you want to go see a major concert, Commodores, you know, OJs or different band, Earth, Wind & Fire, you would have to go to Tampa or Orlando, which meant you got to wear parents and so on. Now they have this concert hall in Lakeland that I could ride my bike to. And so all my friends, we would get together and we'd figure out a way to get there. Our brothers would take us over and we'd see all these amazing artists. And so it really inspired me to see these professionals at such a young age. So it, it put me on my journey of being a musician. And fast forward to college, I did my bachelor's and master's in music, moved to New York, did a year with a guy at Juilliard through the Man School of Music, and then played professionally in New York and also did some ministry work. And then, you know, I got married and had kids, and but I didn't want to be on the road because that wasn't how I grew up. You know, my dad was there. So I played locally and I decided, you know, really to make a good living, I was going to have to kind of divide my time because I'd sacrifice some music things. And so I started doing consulting. And it was interesting how music had prepared me for technology, because the same part of the brain that you develop as a musician is the same part of the brain of logic, notes, theory that you use in computers or in programming or project management. And so I flourished in the software and the computer field and did a lot of certifications in it because I always have my master's. And over time, I was still playing and I was consulting. So I'd, on the weekends, I'm playing or I do a gig or I do a show and then I'm consulting during the week. And I started noticing that these two groups are very similar. So that when you had a really amazing IT project or business project where everybody got together and really kind of made it swing, made it groove, had a vibe, 
that it was like playing in a band. It was like playing with other musicians. And then when I played music, I leveraged some of the things I learned in business in my music. So over time, ISIS just came together. In 2015, I wrote a book called Culture is the Bass. And it was around that time that the song All About That Bass was out with the jazz group, the guy playing the upright. And it really took off. And the whole idea of using music as a metaphor, because that's who I am, right? I've been playing since I was 10 years old. So that's, it's what I know. It's in fact, a lot of the principles of what I've done in my business career and, and leading my companies as CEO of two companies is based on what I learned as a kid playing music. So that's how I got to where I'm at. I want to add some, some context or scope around this. You've been able to go out and build a business where your clients include government agencies. They include Verizon. They include, I think I saw Pfizer, like some big name. One of my main clients right now is MasterCard. The work that we're doing with them is global. I have a, another client that's the Virginia Department of Transportation, and they brought me in at a time where they were struggling with a portfolio of about 14,000 projects in a $16 billion budget. So they had a major problem, and we were able to streamline and leverage an automated scheduling system, plugged it into an old archaic system that they have, got the two systems talking, and we were able to streamline that process that they could actually now spin up and start doing projects 40% faster, which obviously in a $16 billion budget is a lot of taxes and cost savings. And now because of the efficiencies, they've been able to reduce the number of projects to around seven or 8,000, but their budget has gone up to around 24, 25 billion in their six-year program. And they are still making amazing progress and doing great things in Virginia because of using some of the things that we put together. And it was just a small team. It was like myself as a subject matter expert and three developers. Wow. Good for you, man. That's really cool. I want to get in and and understand a bit of how you've approached some of these bigger contracts. I'm very curious about that. But I also want to talk about jazz. And it's, it's out of curiosity for what makes kind of jazz special as a music genre, because I think it's pretty outstanding compared to all of the others, but I'm not a music aficionado, but at all. And so I was just really curious to know more about jazz and I know we'll be able to tie it into the rest of our conversation. Yeah. So outside looking in, when you look at jazz, kind of what you see is you see three or four guys on stage and they start playing. Most of the time, they have nothing in front of them. There's no notes. And sometimes they may have a music stand, and depending on the band or whoever the guys have come together. But the majority of the time, there's like nothing in front of them. But yet they are like playing in sync and they're together and so on. And so a lot of times from an outside standpoint, it looks like, well, jazz, they're just freewheeling it. And with classical, it's structured and so on. And from the inside, who studied and played both, I did my master's on the, the big upright bass there in classical music, like Beethoven, Bach, Brahms, and so on, and an orchestra, and playing jazz. Both are very structured. Both have a roadmap. The jazz musician, they're playing a song that has a roadmap, it has a melody, and it has a process. And so with jazz, the musicians have memorized the roadmap. Like in classical, it's multiple pieces of music, and so... You know, yeah, you may have a soloist who memorizes the concerto, but the rest of the orchestra is looking at the music and kind of following along. So they're just kind of following the roadmap, right? And then the conductor's creating interpretation. But with jazz, the musicians have, you know, songs that they're playing, either the songs they wrote or songs that are called standards or other folks' songs that they've written. So they've memorized the melody, they memorize all the chord changes, how the chords move from one thing to the next and so on. And then they memorize their part, what they play. So with jazz, one of the things that's really neat about it is that when you start playing, the musicians have to, and sometimes you may watch them on stage, and you'll see guys closing their eyes, right, while they're playing. They're just kind of into the music and they're playing and closing their because they have like really tuned up their listening. So they listen to the tonality, they listen to the speed, they listen to, you know, just the syncopation and the rhythm. Because they need to make sure that they're playing in sync at all times. Because if the piano player is playing a song and it's really fast and all of a sudden he slows down, the tempo is still going fast, but he slows down and plays uh, longer notes. 
well, the rest of the musicians are going to slow down, still playing at the same speed. They're going to play longer notes to complement what the piano player is doing. And if a saxophone player says he takes a solo and reiterates the melody and he starts playing, well, the rest of the band is now going to listen to him. So in jazz, you can have one song where you may have three or four different people within the band take the lead and play the solo, give you their interpretation of the melody. And then they go back to play the melody and the song, and then they close the song out. But doing that entire transition, roles are being changed. Everyone has to submit to the guy who has a solo. They're trying to figure out it's his time to shine. So let's follow him. Let's listen to what he's doing. Let's compliment what he's doing. If he goes dot, 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 somebody else is going to go dot, dot, dot. And it's kind of a complimentary framework. And what's interesting is that in business, we really need those same skills. So is it within jazz then, and I want to come back to your point of of business and and the skills that are needed there, but within jazz, when you have a a band who's playing, they're just not kind of playing a completely memorized song. They may be, but in general, they're coming on and there's a, a beat and a tempo and then Within that, each band member gets their time to shine and can even play a solo that is just inspired to their own like for the day. They can play it that's inspired, but while they're playing what's inspired, they're also following the rules. Think of it as a poet. A poet. With poetry, someone may create a sonic or an amazing poem, but they're still following the rules of grammar. They're still following the rules of their language, Right. So there's a framework, and based on the chord changes and how the chords move, there are rules of how to play within those chords. And once you understand the rules, now you know how to break the rules, right? Once you understand them. But you first have to learn the language. And so really what's interesting with jazz is jazz is more like a language than anything else. It's definitely music, and music is like the idea of the root of music is the word muse, right? It's to move. And it's almost has a real spiritual connotation to it. That's why if you ever talk to musicians, even if they haven't played together before, they begin to play together. It's like they become like closer than brothers. And literally it becomes like there's this this connection that happens between jazz musicians that, you know, are musicians themselves that music creates. And it's almost like an entity within itself that kind of brings everybody together. But there are rules around all the jazz and the solos and things like that. So they're just not playing anything that they want to play. They're playing within the structure and being very creative. And that's why when you you hear about Coltrane and, and Charlie Parker and Miles Davis and, you know, Gerald Albright and some of these other guys who are just really famous musicians, they're famous because they've learned the science of music. And then they've learned all the rules and then they learned how to break all the rules and then add their own flavor to it and do things within the structure that other musicians just look at and gawk and go like, wow, that's amazing. And they're saying that because they're actually following a framework and a process and they're becoming virtuosos on their instrument. Because here's the other thing, to do all of that that you hear in jazz, the musicians have to know the instrument like the back of their hands. They have to know all the chord changes. They have to know all the different types of chords, all the different sounds this instrument can make, what's possible with it, and be able to call upon those faculties within seconds or nanoseconds. And then the other musicians have to be able to respond within that same framework to what that musician is doing. Exactly. And so here's where I find this interesting is, one, I've just always been fascinated with jazz, even though I'm not somebody who listens, I was just like, there's something there that is perhaps underappreciated by those who aren't into it. But then the other side, and what I think is interesting is you bringing the world of music and jazz into business. And I say this as there's been times and teams that I've worked with where this magic just happens. It's like we all get the beat and everybody kind of knows their part and it just flows and Things get done almost seamlessly. One of my team members, we laugh as her and I at times are just synced up. Like we just kind of, we're almost thinking the exact same thing, even though we're in a different city. And so I think that's interesting how you've connected that. And can you tell me more about that? Yeah. And in fact, what you just described is the essence of my book, my second book called Workplace Jazz. 
is that in business, and it doesn't have to be just musicians, it can be you know anyone in business. It's when you're working on a project and you know, for one, you're really good at what you do. So everyone on a team needs to be really excellent because one of the things about playing music and playing jazz is everyone has to really woodshed or practice and really know their instrument. So they're coming to the game. They're coming to the concert. They're coming to the rehearsal and they know their part. But now someone says, okay, well, great. Everybody knows their part, but here's the bigger picture for this concert or for this show. For instance, in business, everyone comes to, to the project knowing their part. The project manager knows how to schedule. They know how to analyze requirements. They know how to run a sprint. The developers know how to write the code. The business analysts know how to take the user requirements and turn them into user stories. The QA people know how to you know, set up their testing processes. They know all the science behind that. But now the bigger picture is, hey, we need a e-commerce site that's going to provide this experience for that particular user in this way. So now everyone has to go, okay, how can I use my specific skills and adjust them to make that happen along with everyone else in the room? So one of the things that you know happens, and many times it's unannounced in a business context, is that you have to submit to the bigger picture and to each other. And you go, okay, how do we make this work? So you start, you know, okay, you're really good at this. Oh, you've done that project before. Well, I did this project. Oh, well, if we add a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and pretty soon you're creating something new that neither one of you guys had done before on a project. You're keeping the audience in mind, the stakeholders, the business users, you're keeping them in mind. And then you're flushing out the solution. And in the process, You get to know each other. One person's leading. So maybe it's the beginning of the project and it's the business analyst because he's talking with the stakeholders and he's getting all the requirements and he's having to validate all the requirements that these requirements can be actually executed on. So he's having to talk to everyone. Hey, can we really develop this? Can we do this? How do we test this? And so on. Then you get to the development part. Now the developers are leading. They're soloing. So they're writing the code and the project manager, everyone's supporting them. Hey, let's test your code. Let, you know, did you unit test it? Did you asset test it? Did you all do all the things that you need to do in testing it? And then once it's kind of in a UAT, our, our user testing environment, our test environment, then the quality people take over. Now they're soloing. And so they're kind of taking the lead and developers are supporting them. And so it is a lot like plan jazz when you take projects that are happening and you think about it today. The majority of work that's happening and will happen in the future in business will be projects. Between artificial intelligence, process automation, and outsourcing, most of the operational work is being replaced by some form of automation or smartphone app or something like that. So then what's the work of the business? It's to continually grow or innovate and change and bring new products. Well, all of those things are projects. Yeah, business development through project execution. Exactly. Hmm. Interesting point. So a lot of project work is going to be taken on. My next book is called A Symphony of Choices. Antonio Nilo Rodriguez, who wrote the book Harvard Business Review and Project Management, did the forward and is recommending it because it's a business novel. And he teaches something called the project economy to where really, if you look at every great society, all things happen because of projects. Even if you think about what the president does, regardless of who's in office or what particular party's in office, what does he do? He comes and says, we're going to put in pipelines. We're going to do this transportation project. We're going to do this. All those are projects. So the majority of the work that's happening, even in the administration, is project work. Yeah, everything. It doesn't matter how big your company is. From a startup, you've just raised capital all the way through to you could be a multi-billion dollar organization and there's projects going on endlessly. Now, with your experience as a musician and as a bassist, and somebody who would be setting the tone, setting the beat within the band, how do you translate that over to business? And how do you get that beat to go so people are playing their parts and getting that tempo of a project moving so that things get done on time and done well? Yeah, well, so you have to take the mindset of a conductor or band leader. And here's what I mean by that. Previously in business, the mindset was management by walking around, 
right? You know, the manager was the one who kind of laid out the strategy and kind of walked around, made sure everybody did their what they needed to do. But now, because you have this gig economy, you have so many people who are really specialists at what they do, they really don't need, and because of the communication changes, right, with all the technology and changes and virtual, you know, especially because of the pandemic and everything, everybody's working remotely and so on and so forth, and the world has radically changed. Workers now, the knowledge workers, are much more like artists. They take a lot of pride in their work. They take a lot of pride in developing their skills. They take a lot of pride in their work. So they don't need a manager to come around and tell them specifically, do this, do that, do the other, do this, and let me show you how to do this, and make sure you do this, and give me a report. They don't need that. What they need is a conductor. But a conductor is someone who is also a musician, and they create the big picture. But they know how to pull. If you see the conductor conducting and he's kind of doing this, well, he's pulling out of the cellist or the violas. He's pulling them and saying, hey, give me your best. Give me your ideas. Bring your best to the table. A band leader, you know, who's like one of the peers in the band, you know, he may be playing the music and he's the band leader, but he's also relying on the band and the rest of the members to bring their best. So I think when we come in to work as a leader, as a CEO of your company, and first you check your ego at the door and you see yourself as the conductor it's your job to cast the greater vision and purpose of the organization, but then to figure out how can I serve? Because as a bass player, basically my job in a band is to keep the groove. Whether it's playing classical or jazz, it's to keep things moving and keep the groove. Because sometimes the drummer's just over there playing. He's kind of got his rhythm going, but he's kind of like showing off. And then these other guys are doing, but who's got to hold that center and so that you know where the song is? It's always going to be the bass player. And so that's kind of like the role of the CEO is to lead and hold that center. And I really like Satya Nadella, who's the CEO of Microsoft. I like something I heard from him and I've kind of adopted for myself and my companies, which is my role is to model, coach, and care. You know, model excellence, you know, through my own personal development, through writing books, through podcasts and radio interviews and leading the way and being a thought leader and just kind of continually growing and providing great services. But then as I'm modeling that for my team to turn around and inspire them and coach them to do the same, call them higher by my example, but then also coach them and then be sensitive and have emotional intelligence and empathy enough to know that life happens. The pandemic happens, stuff happens. So if you care about your people and you really are engaged with them, they will then know that, man, you know, my CEO really cares about me and my company cares about what I'm doing. He's leading the way with, I mean, he's the author of books, he's doing this, he's doing that, and he's coaching me to be better and providing avenues for me to get better. People are going to perform when they're in that environment. And that's why when you go to a concert, you hear great music. Because they've been allowed to express themselves and bring their best selves to the table. That's when you go to hear an orchestra, it's like you walk away and you're in tears and it's blowing you away because the musicians are bringing their best selves to work. Because the conductor has cast enough bigger vision, but also he's moved out of the way and allowed them to display their expertise and excellence. It's an interesting one when you look at Perhaps not the most popular genre of music is traditional orchestras, but what an incredible organization. And in it, a business, right? Like if that orchestrator can't conduct or that conductor can't conduct the orchestra, ain't nobody going to hang out to watch for too long. So it really is an interesting business in itself. And I've always been amazed. Yeah, it, it can bring an emotion of how this individual can draw out and really as you're saying, bring the best out of people. So I'm, I'm glad we're having this conversation because these things have always been of interest, but I've never taken the time to really know, get deeper into them. And I love the tie into business. And it's something that everyone can relate to. You don't have to be a musician. And that's kind of how I wrote my books. They have a musical theme, but you don't have to be a musician to understand them. If you've played the radio or gone to a concert and you've seen a band on stage, you will get the principles 
of the things that I talk about in the books because of just, you know, again, music is something that is so humane to all of us. It's so essential. I mean, you know, what would life be if we didn't have music? You know, we couldn't come home in the afternoon and you know, get in the car and turn on the radio and listen to a really good song on our way home and kind of decompress, right? Or get up in the morning, get ready to work out and put on our headphones and listen to some music that pumps us up. You know, music has that way of just kind of transcending our emotions and helping us get to another state. And so when you think about well, what do these guys bring to the table? And when you think about high-performing teams, what are some of the best high-performing teams? A group of musicians that have learned how to really work well together. Because the thing about it, when you're playing music, you can't have an attitude with the people you're playing with because the music won't sound well. <laughs> I mean, how many you know disasters I mean? have there been? That's actually something exactly. that I, I've laughed about is when you see a really good band, even one who's just playing at the local pub kind of thing, but they're really good. You look and go, my God, the odds of them sticking together and being able to pull together music like that as individuals within a group of four or five, it just is amazing. And it's brought them together. And again, there's so many different things that's a part of that, that makes those things up. That's pretty amazing. And I think, you know, one of the things we mentioned, or maybe one of the questions you shared with me earlier was about the neuroscience. And so one of the things that I've gotten certified in is, is called conversational intelligence, which is the neuroscience of conversations, because it's all about culture, right? At the end of the day, when you have a conversation, you're creating a culture, right? You're creating communication between two individuals. But more than that, conversations are more than verbal conversations. Conversations are chemical. And here's what I mean. When we start having a conversation and you said, man, I really enjoy that conversation. Well, where does that enjoyment come from? It's the enjoyment experience is your brain releasing oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, and a chemical called GABA. These are neurotransmitters, chemicals that are positive things that make you feel like, man, this is, I'm learning a lot. This is a great conversation. I'm feeling really good about this. Wow. I really appreciate that conversation. And you walk away feeling great. Now, have you ever picked up the phone and someone said, hello, the back of your neck tensed up and, you know, it was like a little pain and you just knew it wasn't going to be a great conversation and they hadn't really even said anything, but it was the chemical reaction that your body gave to their tone, their pitch, what they were sending and the conversation didn't go well, whether it's a, you know, a manager or a customer or you know, a family member or something that kind of created an angst moment for you. And the reason being is that within 0.07 seconds of a conversation, our brains begin to emit a neurochemical of either positive or negative. So we know right away whether we're going to have a good time or a bad time. Tell me more about this neuroscience work and some of the words. Like there's a book, Words That Work, I think, that comes to mind. And... You know, and it really dove into the kind of some of the political usage of language and how spinning the naming of things has a real big impact. But even in certain conversation, like you just alluded to, that the words and how you say them has a very fast impact on the body, you know, physiologically. So tell me more about that. And how does that, how have you applied that to business? Well, one of the best ways to apply to business, is I'll share a story where I had a project team where the teams were being switched out. So some people on the team knew each other. Other people did not know each other. Some of the ways that the new team members learned about being on the project, some people dropped the ball and didn't really explain it to them. So they were coming to the team with apprehension. And I could tell from just kind of meeting them pre our kickoff, our first meeting together, that there was some disconnect there. So I did an exercise that I talk about in my book as well called the Rules of Engagement. And the idea was to get everybody in a room and it's like, okay, close your computers. Everybody grab some sticky notes. And I said, I want you to write down seven words from when you were in a project team previously, what were some words that you thought about that team? And it had to be a team that you really loved a team that you really had a great experience in. What are some words that come to mind from that experience? 
And so everybody wrote things on their sticky notes. And I said, okay, well, now we're just going to go up individually and I want you to put up your words on the wall. And if you see a word that's similar to your word or the same word, put your sticky on top of that. And what we ended up doing was creating an affinity diagram because it was teamwork, respect, you know, appreciation. You know, these were things that people wrote down that they really liked from various teams. When we looked at the board, there were only a few outliers. And I asked the team, I said, so what do you guys think? He was like, wow, we actually have a lot more in common about what we want from a team than not in common. And so we were able to then kind of talk about the elephant in the room of some of the miscommunication, that we have a lot more in common. And that conversation and that exercise allowed people to drop their defenses drop the cortisol and adrenaline that they were feeling from feeling defensive and start experiencing more serotonin, dopamine, all those feel-good chemicals. So they walked out of the room saying, I think this is going to work. And guess what? It did work. We had a great team. We had ended up having a great project. But what's the core to this is that all of us have something in our brains called the amygdala. And the amygdala is a small almond-shaped organ that basically helps us to decide, is it safe, right? And that's where we get the fight or flight syndrome. And for, you know, if you're a deer, it's the freeze syndrome where they just like panic and stop. And it's like, oh no, I can't. And then it's like, what do I do now, right? And then they get hit by a car or something like that, you know, and that's why a lot of those things happen. But for humans, for us, when we're in a, negative or tense situation, the amygdala kicks in and it's fight or flight. When you're looking and saying, okay, I can't leave my job. I can't just run away from this situation. So what do you do? And you can't physically fight someone or you shouldn't. So then you verbally and mentally fight them and you create this angst within the organization. So by as a leader, by understanding the neuroscience of the amygdala and the amygdala hijacking and all those different processes, you know that, hey, if I'm going to pull my team together, I got to figure out a way to get them unified. I got to figure out a way to get everyone's brain to start producing all these positive neurochemicals so that then they will start bonding and creating this great team environment. So then you look for team building things to kind of create that. Timely exercise and something that's so needed when you think about the amount of anxiety that we have now. And I think it's amount of screen time, amount of social media, amount of, you know, the lack of actual human connection that we've found ourselves in, especially after the pandemic. And I think it's enabled, and listen, I'm no brain scientist or surgeon here, but I look and I would say that our amygdalas are probably like double the size after the pandemic. Like we're just sitting there freaking out about everything. And so you try to bring complete strangers into a room and say, okay, time to work together. Everybody's on guard. And so what I'm hearing from you and this approach and actually being very conscious and aware of how we're conducting ourselves as individuals, as a leader, gives you the opportunity to bring everybody together as a whole. And what's really neat about this is that these concepts work, whether you are in project manager, they call it co-located all in the same place, in the same building, the same room, or distributed across the globe. These principles work. I mean, even you know, as we talk across the screen from each other in different cities or states or countries, it still works. Why? Because the brain actually doesn't know that, hey, well, this guy's like over there in this other country. When you start having a conversation, it just picks up on, is it safe? I may still be in a room by myself and it's like, well, it's safe in here. I'm in a room by myself. But is it safe? Is it emotionally safe? Is it psychologically safe? And that can produce a lot of stress. And so by being a leader who understands that, you can then create a safe space. I get triggered by the word safe space. I also look and say that there's a lot of benefit to being uncomfortable. There's a lot of benefit to pushing yourself beyond your normal place. And if the amount of people saying they want a safe space or that it's a necessary thing and all this kind of stuff, I'm like, whoa, 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 back up. You know what I mean? Nobody's going to die here. You're either got to come together as a team 
And I'm actually taking this opportunity to try to speak it out. But when I hear the word safe space, I'm like, you do not need a safe space. You need to get back to work. Let me ask you this. If you're on a Super Bowl winning or Super Bowl pursuing team, do you think that locker room becomes a safe space for the team? You know, that's a good question. I mean, you would hope that that locker room is somewhere where a space you can build camaraderie, you can be vulnerable, you can express yourself. I would certainly hope that's the case. And to me, that's a safe space. It doesn't mean that there's not a standard, that there's not a striving for excellence, because when you think about that particular room of a locker room of a, a team pursuing the Super Bowl, and they're kind of like one of the leading contenders, it means that one, they're totally unified, they're working together, but they are pushing each other. There may even be arguments in a room and they may get mad at each other as they push each other, but it's still a safe space because they know we're in this together. We're working together. So to me, a safe space doesn't mean that we're, you know, kind of cuddling everyone and we're going to lower the like standard. Like who could be the biggest victim and, versus safe to go out there and, and pursue and have conflict? That's not a safe space. I can't think of the word for it right now, but that's something totally different. But what I'm talking about is a place where you can be vulnerable and you can be yourself, but you're also going to be challenged. You're also going to be pushing to grow and develop, but you also know that the people around you got your back and they're with you. And, you know, as long as you're kind of doing your part, obviously everybody has to do their part. And as, as Bill Belichick would say, do your job. You know, everyone's kind of moving in the same direction. Because in the middle of the in the run for the Super Bowl, of just the, the linemen saying, well, we're not going to block anymore, you know, you've kind of given up the goal, right? You're not going to protect the quarterback. So it means that everyone's still really engaged and focused, but it just means that there is a place for us all to go and work together and that we have each other's back. But again, I think it boils down to the concept of to model, to coach, and to care. And it doesn't mean that even in that model that you're going to set a lower standard and that you're not going to push people to grow. Because if you're setting this standard of growth and you're learning and you're developing, you know you will make people around you uncomfortable. And they'll get uncomfortable enough to either move forward themselves or they'll get uncomfortable to the point where they're like, this is not the place for me. They realize that I can't keep up. This is going too fast for me. You know, you coach them and you care. And caring doesn't mean that I'm just going to carry you in my company because, you know, I'm a human and you're a human. You have to contribute. And if this is not the right mix, then let's have a respectful way to depart and allow you to move on and find the opportunity that's going to be best for you. And for me to find the right person that's going to be best for the purpose of what we're going to be doing. But at the same time, continually keeping that high standard and a high level. I want to talk a bit about the success you've had. And I'm very interested when in how you've been able to work yourself into some of these big names. And I think for a lot of entrepreneurs and business owners, they look and say, you know, those are lofty names, attainable, but there's an approach and an approach you've taken. And I'm curious how you've been able to land some of these whale clients. Honestly, I would say it's your net worth is your network. <laughs> I would say your net worth is your network. And here's what I mean. One of my government clients, I had started my own consulting practice I had a couple of clients and pretty nice sized clients, you know, pretty reputable clients and some clients with names. One, because people were hiring me because of my reputation in the market as a, you know, Microsoft project expert, as a project management expert, someone who at the time I lived down in Spanish Fort, Alabama. Now I was living in, in the DC area at the time. I was president of the Microsoft user group for nine years and that covered DC, Baltimore, and Virginia. So people knew me, people knew you know, my passion for what I did and so on. So when I started my consulting practice, I literally had maybe a couple thousand people I'm connected to on LinkedIn. I sent out about two, 300 messages on LinkedIn. I created a page on my website, here's my services. I have these clients, I'm looking for some additional opportunities. And I said, I didn't ask them for an opportunity. I said, if you know someone who could use my services, please let me know, here's my link to my website. But I already knew they knew who I was. It was mainly for them to pass on to someone else. Those number of messages, two people got back to me and says, hey, I have a client, Verizon, and they need help. So it wasn't like, you know, I just walked in the door and started knocking on Verizon's door and said, hey, Verizon, come talk to me. 
Verizon didn't know me from the man on the moon, but they knew someone that I knew that needed my skills, which then opened a door for me to do work with them and find other opportunities. Same thing with one of the state agencies where there was a company there and the person knew me really well. And literally they were waiting for the contract to kick in and they already had you know a lot of the things set up. And they basically said, we're looking for an expert and we just lost ours. Let me make a phone call. Can you be down here on Monday for this opportunity? Now, there are places where you know I had to knock on a door and build those relationships. But a lot of that is by having, well, I think one of the most important pieces of advice I was given was a gentleman named Carl Pritchard, who's written about seven or eight books in project management. He's a guru in project management. We became friends and worked on a project with me. And I, when I started my consulting practice, I, I went and met him when he was teaching and we met over lunch. And I said, if you were in my shoes, what would you do? He goes, the first thing I'd do is I'd write a book. He goes, the first thing I would do is I'd write a book. And I took his advice. So I wrote a book and created a training course. I wrote a book. I just kept putting myself out there. It's something I learned. You call it falling forward or stumble forward. But even if you fall and you fall forward and you get up, you're further than yeah, <laughs> when, at least you're moving when you forward. fell down. You're constantly moving forward. Get up every day. And because at the end of the day, even the most successful people have routines. Even the most successful people in the world have a schedule of getting up and either working out, reading, studying, you know, meetings and so on. It's the habits and the routines that they've kind of built in that put them on a spiral of meeting the right people, finding opportunities and preparing themselves so that when the opportunity shows up, Guess what? You have the skills, the background, the experience, the book, the knowledge, the podcast, the track record that someone goes, I want to talk to you. And so now if someone was to query my name, you're going to find probably five or six pages of Google posts of different podcasts and radio. You're going to find a podcast with me and Jack Canfield. You're going to find a podcast with one of my clients. You're going to find articles on Thrive Global and where my books have been listed on Entrepreneur's Magazine, and so on. And all that happened, one activity, one phone call, one breakfast meeting, one coffee meeting, one service request. It's just constantly moving forward. And basically kind of making a habit of slowly just kind of putting yourself out there. It really is, when it comes to the world of consulting and building up an organization like that, the foundation and the ongoing commitment to putting yourself out there is just so, so necessary, right? Like you're never stopping that. You can't. Exactly. And, you know, when I first started, one of the things I thought about, because, you know, having consulted for big companies as a consultant and had some big clients myself, the thing I know is a percentage of their budget is dedicated to R&D, period. Right. They basically break their portfolio into kind of like what Gardner says, which is, you know, you have your run the business projects, things you got to do to keep the business going. You have things that you do to grow the business, kind of either um, remove costs or increase your revenue in some way or fashion, some way to upsell or some way to streamline things so you can reduce some costs. But then you also have a bucket called transform the business. Those are your R&D projects or the projects that if you complete them and for an individual practitioner. That project might be a white paper. That R&D project might be some research. It may be an assessment that you create. And initially, you have a handful of people taking the assessment. But over time, you've had over a thousand people take it. Now you have industry, you know, empirical data that you can cite in your books and other places that can be leveraged and that people will find valuable for those insights. Yeah. Or you start a blog post and you know, you turn around and you write one blog post or a week or something. And within a year, you turn around and you're like, you know, I got enough content for a book. You collapse that. And it's like, yeah, the person can go out there and read the whole website. But who's going to do that? They'd rather just go out and grab the book and carry it with them. So now you've taken one thing at a time and you've built a book. Or here's one of the things I learned from being a musician. When I first started playing that little red guitar that I stole from my sister, <laughs> <laughs> and I got really good at it, and I had to switch to bass. 
I got pretty good at playing bass. And I would like go to these concerts and I'd stay up and play. And I got to a point where I plateaued. And I was the youngest of six growing up, right? Mom and dad had, you know, decent jobs, but it wasn't like, you know, whatever you wanted, they were just going to give it. And they said, okay, well, if you want lessons and you want a bass, you got to go out and get a job and buy those things and you got to earn it. So I had to go out, you know, do chores and do things and put money aside and buy my first bass. And then I had to go out and do the same things to take lessons. And it was one of the most valuable things I ever learned as a kid, which was the value of going out, earning money, and paying someone who knows more than you to teach you what they know. And being open to feedback of them saying, no, you don't do it this way, you do it that way, or here's how the proper way to do this, or here's what you do. And by doing that, you grow. And by doing that, I was able to leave the plateau that I was on and start growing myself to where I was able to get a scholarship for college for playing the bass. I was able to get into Cincinnati Conservatory on a full scholarship playing classical bass. I was able to study with the guy on Juilliard at the Demand School of Music on a full scholarship. So I had gotten myself to a point where people were now paying me to go study. So when I switched careers and started doing IT and business, I fell back on that same principle. Find some of the best people in the industry, buy their books, listen to their podcasts, listen to their programs, and more likely in the back of their book, they have a coaching program. And they're saying, here's my number, give me a call. And guess what I did? I called them. And so now Jack Canfield is one of my coaches. Dr. Paul Shilley is one of my coaches and, and a number of other people that have become my coaches. And now I've gotten myself to a point where I can start doing business with them or offering them opportunities to do business with me with some of my major clients. I see how you suggested and leveled up and really just started to kind of build in and just the continuous learning followed by the relationship development and be able to like bigger and bigger and bigger. Exactly. Exactly. And so Carl Pritchard, like I said, I just wrote my third book and I have, I won't go into it right now, but I have a major publisher that's um, reviewing that. And I should hear something back in a couple of days from here and that it will be a game changer even more. And, but even that, I'll be honest, that was going to a conference and saying, I'm going to sign up for the VIP program, not because I want the content or I want the VIP status. I wanted the networking. I wanted to meet the people who are going to be the movers and shakers at the conference and learn about them and figure out what books did they recommend and so on. And the main guy had studied everybody who came in there and he knew my background and said, I want you to meet my publisher. I would have never, even right now, I have a literary agent and my literary agent says, I don't think you're ready for that publisher. But because this other person said, you're ready for this publisher and I'm going to introduce you to my publisher who's with that, this particular company. She gave me her business card. I sent her my book proposal and the finished manuscript. And we've been having conversations. That would have never happened, would have never have happened if I would have stayed home, if I wouldn't have paid the money to be a part of the VIP program, or if I would have not wanted to put myself out there to network. And I didn't go to the conference looking for those opportunities. I went to go to learn from them. I wasn't looking for someone to give back to me and go, hey, I have these opportunities for you, but just showing up and falling forward. I've got a question for you. You talk about falling forward. What's been your most valuable mistake, would you say? Okay, so one of my most valuable mistakes was, and this was like a, a ministry thing. When I was in New York, and I was doing music at Juilliard and playing music in the city. I also did some ministry work and actually took a small group and grew it to about 250 people and was doing well with it. I wasn't a theologian or anything like that, but I was being trained in leadership and I just kind of gravitated to it and I loved what I was doing. And I was able to play music and do what I was doing with that. Were, were you preaching or what? I did some speaking and, and so on and leading and, you know, kind of you know, carrying things that you would do in a, a kind of more of a hands-on ministry kind of thing. When the ministry got to 250 people, it was bigger than I was. And at that time I had gotten married 
had started having kids. My wife had some pregnancy issues with the first kid that we had to work through. But between that situation and the ministry itself, and again, I was still playing music, it was bigger than me and I didn't have the knowledge to solve the problem. So someone else had to come in and help me and eventually just take it over. And that was a very painful experience of seeing something I built that I couldn't take it further. What was it that you didn't have then? I would say the leadership skills, the the communication skills, some of the knowledge of leading or influencing. It was basically just some of the experience as a mature leader. What was it with the size of the group that you, it it grew to a size? It was the dynamics of the group, you know, the responsibility of managing the group and the folks that I was leading, it just basically outgrew me, right? And so the lesson I learned that was a painful lesson, and I'm glad it happened early in my career in music and in business, was never create an organization that outgrows you. So in other words, even now, as I'm building an organization, I'm in programs with the Warden School. I have a couple of coaches who have PhDs in neuroscience, and I'm literally in a program I would say two or three programs on a monthly basis where half of my day is being a part of a program or being part of a mentoring program or, or getting coached or you know learning new skills and learning new ways and being more efficient. And even though I've been able to now really get my hands around some really large projects, like I said, you know, having clients that have you know multi-billion dollar portfolios and, and feel very comfortable managing that. MasterCard has a global portfolio in multiple countries. And so for me to be able to begin to get involved in those kinds of things, I would have to continually keep growing, right? I'd have to keep growing because that's a whole different, you know, that the C-suite at MasterCard is a whole different ballgame compared to the state level. And even at the state level, it's an organization of 10,000 people. It's not small, right? And billion dollar portfolio. But then when you go to MasterCard, that's like somebody who's leading the country because they're in like every country in the world. And, you know, just so many different tangled ways that this thing is coming together. And so the level of knowledge and the skills required will continually force me to, if I want to play the game, to upskill, to uplevel my skills. And because I understand the value of that and how, you know, and I've never forgotten that lesson. I am relentless about growing. I'm relentless about learning something every day about, you know, how can I get better, faster, quicker? And even with some of the challenges and with all of this, and I don't think I've even talked about this, is that in 2018, I had a major bout with vertigo. And what happened is that we never got to the bottom of what all that, of why it came about. But it wasn't the normal vertigo, and it wiped out what's called the vestibular system. So I literally lost the ability to walk. And it happened six weeks before I was to deliver my TEDx talk, which, if you look at my website, I actually delivered the talk. So I ended up you know, being taken to the hospital, spending a day and a half in the hospital, spending a week in bed. And then my talk was on the neuroscience of music, what it practices performance, And I just rehearsed my talk in my head as I'm laying there once I could get over what was going on because it was actually a brain injury. And then I just started playing music because I knew that if I played my bass, it would activate my brain and my brain would start rewiring itself. And I had to literally get up and go right foot, left foot, right foot, left foot to think consciously about how to walk in my mid-50s, right? And so, but three weeks into that, I walked into my doctor's office unassisted. He could tell I was totally impacted. He did the test and he goes, you lost 86% capability in your right inner ear nerve. You only have 14% ability. He goes, I don't even know how you hear. Not alone, that's your fact that you're walking. And three weeks after that, because I had set a goal and I had affirmations, I had a plan. I walked on stage in Delaware and I delivered my TEDx talk. And after that, I recorded some music about it. (laughs) And so, but my point is, by having goals, having coaches, you know, having a dogged determination to continually grow and figure out how to be my best in those situations, even now, I still have the vestibular balance issue. And so I don't call it a disability. I call it a constraint. 
when something is a constraint, you know, when you're watering your garden and you have a nozzle from like Home Depot or something and you put on it, that's called the Venturi effect. It's a physics concept called the Venturi effect. What's the point? Well, the water is constrained in the nozzle, but it also has a wider spray, can be used more efficiently. In fact, you use less water more efficiently. And so by looking at and having studied the theory of constraints, looking at this as a constraint instead of a disability, disabled, not able, but seeing it as I'm powerful, but I need to limit what I can do, but create more of an impact, it makes me think differently. So I look at what can I do and how can I run my companies and run my business in a way that I can have even more impact and keep growing even though I have this constraint. I really like the concept of of looking at things as constraints. When I was in grade school, they just looked at me straight up. They're like, you're dyslexic. You've got a disability. And they're like, okay, on your way. There's no support there. And they say, somebody came to me and sat down. They just dismiss you. Yeah, pretty much. And so, but if somebody came to me and said, said listen, you got a bit of a constraint there. So take all that energy and let's channel it somewhere else. I mean, that would have been great. But they also see, and I do believe that when you are constrained, constrained by time, constrained by resource, is it forces you to think better. You have to be efficient. You have to be more with less. And that's when great things happen. So I really like how you phrase that. One thing I got to do, though, man, is we're already at an hour. I really enjoyed my conversation <laughs> with you. And I want to close off quickly with asking about books. What are two or three books that have really lit you up? Two or three books that have really lit me up. One is Conversational Intelligence. The person who wrote the book passed away. It's an amazing book on just the power of conversations. And it, she really gets into it at a higher level that you can really understand the neuroscience of conversations. But she drives the point home with all her research and all the things that she put in the book. And again, I had the pleasure of, once I read the book, I researched the organization joined her tribe, did two years of training underneath her and her organization and got my certification. That's what that larger plaque on the wall in the middle, right by the base is. It's the uh, certification in conversational intelligence, neuroscience. Right before I finished that program, she passed away and her husband and some others finished it with me and with the other cohort of of folks who were in the program. But uh, that was an amazing book. I'd say Jack Canfield's Success Principles is another one. And in fact, I'm certified to teach the success principles and working with Jack and his team to teach it virtually. And then another one is a gentleman named Dr. Paul Shilley. He wrote a book called Photo Reading. And basically, it's a way of reading books that you can gain the majority of what you need from the book in a fraction of the time. And it's learning how to use your whole brain. So those are three books that have radically changed my life that have fired me up. And I always love The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. That was another book that impacted me. Very cool. I have one more question. Over your shoulder is a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. What yep. does that mean to you? I went to Springfield, Illinois to spend some time. After a meeting with my client on MasterCard, I drove over to Springfield, Illinois because my daughter lives there. And the Abraham Lincoln Library was there. And it wasn't so much of just all of that he did in life with emancipation and so on and so forth, although those things are very important. You know, he was a president that did not go to college to get a law degree, but yet he was a lawyer. He lost his mom. His dad went out to go find a woman to marry and left him and his siblings there in the woods, basically, to fend for themselves. And then when he came back, the woman he married, uh, his father married, loved books and really got him into books. And he became someone that learned to read and became a self-educated lawyer that, you know, had a lot of challenges, you know, lost a lot of elections. But Abraham Lincoln kept falling forward. And he was someone who, you know, grew from what he read, but he also grew from the people he was around. He had great mentors and coaches. And so when I have read his autobiography and read his biographies and things that people have written about him, you know, I can relate to that journey 
of, let's say, being someone who in business who was pretty much self-educated. I didn't go back to school and get a business degree. I didn't go back to, I didn't want to go back to school and get another master's in business. And so I went the certification route and I read every book I could get my hands on. And then I realized I needed to find the right coaches or instructors. Like if I was playing music, I can relate to a lot of what he went through and to see what he achieved with those limited resources. And, but yet his dogged determination to continually fall forward. And his love for for reading, his love for stories, telling, and just his own pursuit of personal growth, that he changed this country because he was willing to change himself. Very cool, man. Gerald, I'm really happy we finally were able to do this interview. Thanks for uh, Excellent. Thanks for spending the time. Hey, no problem, man. I'm so, Corey, I'm really happy. And thanks so much for the time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.